listening to see here brother my name is rich wilson my name is josh wilson and we are a couple of brothers we love film and we love literature and we just like sharing that with each other and with you so hello hello everyone hello it's been a while it has been quite a while yeah we had uh scheduling challenges for the first part of 2022 to uh be able to get together and record so this is a long time coming but we've been looking forward to having this discussion so if you if this is your first time to check out the podcast or if in the long interim you forgot what we were about, basically every episode I pick something for Rich to check out, um, usually a movie that he's never seen before, and he picks something for me to investigate, usually a book or a, some, some sort of writing, and I read it, and then we get together and discuss it. So yeah. This, I no, I appreciate you reminding uh, everyone because I don't think I even it's been long enough. I don't think I even remembered what we're doing here. So, yeah, well, you the it's like muscle memory. You kind of you kind of forget these things. Yeah, exactly. Out, but no, happy, happy, very happy to be back doing this. Uh, and uh, you know what? You missed an opportunity there, though, to say like the reason why it took us so long is because we invested so much. In the production quality for our new season here. That's right. It'll it'll we, be very obvious in the in. The <laughs> we've spared every expense. So, um, actually, well, the real reason was we were just trying to be thematic because the um, the movie that I picked for you um, this month is Silence. So we thought we'd prepare everyone by like three months of silence from our podcast yes yes and And i picked the book art and faith so i wanted people to have faith that eventually we were going to come up with a new uh episode here very artfully done very thank you thank you so i'll give a a little intro to the film um if you haven't seen it i do recommend um just as another reminder to everybody we do go into in-depth discussions of the of the movies and books that we that we just dis- um that we discuss wow that was uh speaking of artfully speaking done. Of artful yeah exactly maybe you should have uh maybe you should have tried a little bit more silence there so anyways what i was trying to warn people of is that we don't hesitate to get into plot details or into discussions of the endings of the books or or films that we watch and that's going to be especially the case for this for this movie silence so this movie um is directed by martin scorsese uh came out in 2016 or 2017 and it showed up briefly in theaters and then disappeared um and it really didn't get the wide release that it that it deserved but um it's based on a novel by um the japanese uh novelist shusaku endo um, which actually Rich had given me the novel years ago, and I did read it, but it took me a while to get to it. It's a novel about a couple of Jesuit priests that, in the 16th century, they try to enter into Japan during the time where Christianity is being not only suppressed, but horribly persecuted as part of a 
effort by the, the shogunate to eliminate all foreign influences from the uh, from the country. These two priests hear rumor that their former mentor, Father Ferreira, has apostatized and renounced his faith. And so they decide to sneak into the country and try to find out his whereabouts and find out if it's indeed true that he's renounced his faith. So they are able to do so with the help of a Japanese Christian named Kikujio, and they're able to sneak into the country and they find a uh, village of hidden Christians who um, are are being oppressed by an inquisitor named Inoue, who is sending out his forces through the land to find any hidden Christians to make them recant their faith by having them step on an image of Jesus or the Virgin Mary. And if they don't do so, then they're tortured and usually killed. Um, so these two priests who are named um, Garpe or uh, for some reason in the movie Garupe and Rodriguez, they are able to hide out for some time. But after a while, the uh, persecution reaches the village where they're hiding and they are forced to split up and go out into the countryside where eventually both of them are captured. Father Rodriguez is really the main protagonist in, in the story of both the novel and um, Scorsese's film. And so it follows him. He's played by Andrew Garfield in the movie. And eventually he's brought by the Inquisitor to a jail in Nagasaki and is uh, himself somewhat psychologically tortured as he watches other of his fellow Christians being more physically tortured. And he decides not to recant his faith for quite some time. But eventually he's brought to face-to-face with Father Ferreira, the one that they had come into the country to look for, who's played by Liam Neeson in the film. Father Ferreira has not only recanted his faith under the pressure and torture of the authorities, but he's now working with them to eliminate and find any hidden Christian messages that are in that are in any objects that come in from overseas. And he's also working to develop a treatise um, that basically refutes the Christian faith from the Japanese perspective. This, of course, is devastating to the faith of Father Rodriguez, who came there to, to find Ferreira. Ferreira has even been given a Japanese wife and children that he inherited from a, a dead samurai and has taken a Japanese name. So he's basically completely accommodated to the Japanese. As the film continues, what eventually happens is that Father Rodriguez is taken to a place where the Christians are being tortured in an even more um, despicable and horrifying way. They're basically hung upside down with their heads over a pit of foul stuff and they have a little slit cut into their behind their ear so that blood can drip out so that the pressure doesn't build up and make them pass out or die too quickly and this is a form of torture that's excruciating but father 
Rodriguez does not himself undergo the torture, but is basically pressured into re- renouncing his faith from in order to save these other people. So as the film ends, he has basically suppressed his own faith and renounced it from the outside and um, has joined Liam Neeson's character, Father Ferreira, as a helper to root out the Christian influences in in the country. And he ends up dying um, on the outside, at least after many, many years, um, as a apostate. And um, the very last image of the film um, shows him receiving a Buddhist burial where he's inside of a a round barrel-like coffin that is immolated. And the camera zooms in to show that his his, uh, Japanese wife that he was given has secretly put a crucifix into his hand, sort of indicating that, at least in an interior sense, that he never fully recanted his Christian faith. So that's the the outline of what happens in the film, missing a lot of the details. But the thing about uh, Endo's novel, and by extension Scorsese's film, which is very, very faithful to the book, is that it puts forward a situation that is basically impossible for there to be a good or clear moral answer. Um, as somebody that I read once said, kind of described it, it's, it's one thing to be willing to be tortured and die for your faith. It's another thing to be willing to have somebody else be tortured and die for your faith. And that's really the moral dilemma that Father Rodriguez comes to from this kind of diabolical situation that the Japanese persecution leads to. But there's also a lot more themes involved that we can that we can talk about as well. But I just wanted to kind of set that up. So before I, I go any further, Rich, what's your um, experience with the, the book? And obviously this was your first time to, to see the film version. And just tell me what you thought of the of the movie. Yeah, it's really well done. It it is, as you say, it's very faithful for the most part to the novel. It doesn't there's no significant departures from a plot standpoint. Um, there might be slight differences in some of the characterizations of uh, some of the people, which is something I might uh, talk about a little bit. But uh, on the whole, it's it's a slow-moving film, which I'm okay with because it is a contemplative work. And and on that in in that sense, I think Scorsese did it well. That it, I suppose it could be easy from a, a film standpoint to kind of sensationalize this. Because there is a lot of violence in this film uh, and betrayal and things of that nature. But I think that some of the steps that Scorsese took to make it be more of a contemplative experience allows it to be more faithful to the spirit of the book. Which is itself, as you say, it said you said it took you a little while. It took me a while to get into it as well. Both of those experiences are fairly slow moving. Which is fine because I think that we're being asked to kind of sit in that discomfort as it slowly builds for a while. So there were a number of elements in the film I thought contributed to that. Most notably, one of the things that I kind of 
I guess after the fact kind of realized is that there's not really a traditional film score. No. And the soundtrack is largely composed using sounds of nature. And then interspersed with that some more traditional chants and things of that nature. But they didn't want it to be overly heavy in that regard. They wanted it to largely be kind of reflective of silence itself, in a sense. Reflective of the experience that you might have when you're on your own somewhere. As for a period of time, Rodriguez is, after he leaves the village, he spends... In the book, it's actually... He spends... It's a kind of a lengthier portion where he's after he leaves the village uh, in Japan he spends a, a fair amount of time kind of by himself and that's where his kind of where some of his doubts or some of his questioning starts to uh, starts to emerge and even a little bit in a sense a little bit of madness um, which is reflected in the scene where he sees himself in the river or in the creek and kind of laughs maniacally at himself although he's also seeing in that, uh, the face of Christ. Yeah, that image of of Jesus. It's a it's a painting, and I I should have looked this up. I'm not sure what the painting is. It looks sort of like an El Greco or something like that. It's a kind of a long, pale face of Jesus that uh, supposedly, or or I I I, su- I suppose would have been the sort of devotional image that a Portuguese priest of that era might have in his mind as the the image of of jesus but it keeps coming up in his in his um reflections as he's praying or or as he's thinking about jesus that's the image that comes up that arises and it happens about three or four times throughout the film and the one you mention is right before he's finally captured he's seeing himself in the in the reflection of the water and then his own reflection becomes that reflection of Jesus, which is a very loaded metaphor or image, because as a priest, he when he's operating as as a priest, the Catholic theology is that he operates in persona Christi, which means as the person of Christ, in the sense of acting and and administering the sacraments, because the sacraments, the Eucharist or confession are the way are the means of of grace to be distributed through the liturgical acts of the of the church and the priest is the one doing that physically so so to see himself as Jesus that's it's not just the liturgical and sacramental thing he has to kind of decouple himself over time from the idea that he can like Jesus be able to sacrifice himself for the behalf of the Japanese people that he's there to assist and convert. And uh, Father Ferreira, the the apostate priest, eventually taunts him with that, right? He says something like, did you think you could be like Jesus, that you, you know, that you are worthy to your sacrifice is going to have some kind of effect? So that, that, that particular image is definitely one of the key moments I'd say in the film that you picked up on. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of themes in there. Of course, at some point we have to address here the theme of, of silence itself, which is, I think stronger in the book. Uh, I think that some of the cinematic elements 
like I mentioned, the soundtrack and even the film opens with silence and ends with silence. It doesn't have a, you know, intro music or outro music or anything like that. I think that that's where the, the theme kind of plays itself out. But in the book, it's definitely a little bit stronger or more uh, overt in terms of the reference to God's silence in the face of suffering. It's still mentioned quite a few times where particularly Rodriguez has to ask God, why are these people, what is the meaning of their suffering? And then doesn't really hear back from God in the way that he's, that he's anticipating. Uh, and that's a major, of course, theme. Well, if I can interrupt. Yeah, no, go ahead. The, the interior struggle of a person's soul is notoriously difficult to put onto a movie screen, right? Because you can have somebody describing that in words on a page. Sure. I'm not saying it's, a, I'm not saying it's no, an oversight. I just mean it's a, that it's a misstep. It's probably inevitable that that would be less um, emphasized than the physical aspects of the suffering because of the nature of the medium. But I think it's still there. I mean, one of the ways he does use that is um, some of the sparing but occasional and important use of Rodriguez's vo voiceover, yeah, voiceover, right, in order to explain what he's thinking or feeling when he's just you know wandering in in the mountains or something like that. You 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 wouldn't know what he's thinking about. Like he's having this spiritual struggle at the same time but you had another thing you were going to say yeah i was just going to say on the on the theme of silence itself i don't know it's an interesting um way of endo and then of course scorsese also exploring this theme because in the end it isn't his conversion of the uh, japanese people it isn't his boldness uh, with sharing the gospel, it is in fact his silence that does good you mean the, for them. His his silence in return in regard to Rodriguez's yes, silence. Father Rodriguez. Yes. His silence in terms of not being outspoken. Uh the book itself was not resoundingly well received uh for a variety of reasons. Uh, Indo himself was kind of an outsider both to his home country as a Catholic, which is uh, even to this day, the presence of Christianity in Japan is fairly minimal. Um, it's, you know, of course not persecuted the way it once was. But but then as a uh, post-war Japanese in Europe, where he was doing all of his studying in French literature, he was also not well-received and not very welcome. So, but his work itself is is an attempt to kind of or at least uh, I see it as an attempt to be this kind of border stalker, as Fujimura would put it. Somebody who uh, is kind of on the edge or on the standing in between two worlds, so to speak. And so the confrontation of these of these two worlds, uh, I think, is treated fairly. In fact, I think the movie does a little bit better job of handling the confrontation of the two cultures yeah. uh, than the book. The book has a different sort of element to it that that, I, that we can talk about here in a minute in terms of Rodriguez's character is slightly different. I well, think. I think just to stay on this point, though, before you move to the character, 
The I was going to stay on this point. Don't tell me what point to stay on. <laughs> Go <Hey>. ahead. <laughs> I don't tell you what to do. Exactly. I don't tell you what to <laughs> podcast about, so don't tell me how to podcast about what you what it is you tell me to podcast about. So, the obligatory. So right. this may be partly because this is a movie being made by a Western or originated from you know an American screenwriters and uh, director that are interpreting this as opposed to the Japanese centric origin of the of the novel but I think there's a lot going on there that's not just about you know spiritual temptation to have faith or not have faith but there is a lot of implicit baggage about the idea of uh, colonialism or cultural imperialism and the way that the Jesuits were there specifically to spread the faith of Christianity but you know they were also there maybe not the Jesuits themselves but their you know who they came with were also there to you know open up trade or open up exploit you know resources or or any any of those political aims that so frequently are ultimately at odds with the the message of the gospel and that right is mixed up yeah it's worth noting definitely that at the time portugal was a world power right in the same way you could argue that maybe not to quite the degree but in very similar degree that england became a world power in, in you know the 19th century or the way right. that the u.s is now right so i think there is some sympathy on the part of uh scorsese with the japanese i think that's I think that's an important element of this film that I did see some people who addressed it as if it was sort of a naked apologetic for the Christian and, oh, look at how much they've suffered. And there isn't a ton of sort of condemnation of those of those Christians, but, the, but you are forced to at least uh, kind of grapple with that sort of uh, idea, uh, at least as far as the idea of kind of cultural imperialism, at least as far as, you know, when there are some, there are a few scenes in which there's kind of a religious debate going on between, you know, Rodriguez and either His interpreter, uh, the inquisitor or the interpreter. Yeah. And largely some of their sort of philosophical debates center around the idea of... Well, whether whether Christianity is possible to exist in Japan or whether Japan has some sort of intrinsic nature to its people and its land and its culture that prohibits Christianity from being able to, to flourish. I mean, that's one of the central, the central conflict in the, in the film, as far as the ideas go, is that, and it's not, not only is, I think that not really resolved in the, in the movie or in the book, but it's, I don't think that we're intended to have a resolution to that because there's a whole tension that I think for a modern viewer, because we can look back and say, well, that's just how it was back then. There, the persecution of the Christians was, it's a historical fact. So if you present that, I don't think that you're necessarily doing the Japanese a disservice 
or 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 but but I don't think that they go out of their way to valorize the work of the of the missionary priests because they are shown as being at least implicitly tied to the secular authorities that are trying to make inroads for their own gain um, into Japan. So how does that apply to the uh, you know a modern viewer or or reader or viewer in the 20th 20th 21st century? I mean if you're a Christian, you have to look and and say, well, there's this thing called the Great Commission that, you know, concludes the gospel saying, Jesus saying that we're supposed to go into all of the world and, and preach the gospel. But on the other hand, there has been a very sad history of people using that as a as a license to forcefully by means of military conquest or by means of forced conversion or, or something like that, or, or just extreme forms of proselytism or, or oppression or excluding people economically or, or all kinds of things that tie the gospel spread of the, you know, the spread of the gospel, which is not really the gospel anymore, but just the spread of Christianity as a cultural force, you know, that tied it to political and secular and temporal power. And that all, every time that that becomes ascendant in history, there's really bad consequences that are, I think, direct, indirect opposition to that message of Jesus. So, um, here we have a, an extreme example of that. Yeah. Where, the people pushed back because they had the power to do so and they did they they did so the people of Japan I mean in a very brutal and evil way with the torture of their own people and with the torture and murder of the foreign foreign elements but the question still remains as to how are we supposed to deal with spreading the gospel if we are Christians to places that are not receptive in that manner so it's not answered really here yeah and i think one of the things that endo and then of course uh, subsequently scorsese in the film are are trying to discuss is what is the nature of the idea of spreading the gospel in a sense right um yeah there's even one point in which Rodriguez is debating with Inoue, uh, Inoue, the Inquisitor, and he says something to the nature of, you know, truth is truth right. no matter what. And because the Japanese, he was saying something like, your truth right. may work where you are, yeah. but culturally here it doesn't work. Yeah. And Rodriguez is saying something like, well, if truth is truth, then, then it's universal. And yet... I think that's that's the challenge with with something like the Great Commission is that if you look at the life of Christ, his his primary focus in ministry was reaching out to the to the poor and reaching out to the underserved and loving them and meeting their physical needs. And so, as you say, when that kind of mission, which I think Rodriguez has authentically is coupled with sort of forces of imperialism you can imagine that that's what the the japanese are are fighting against 
largely is occupation and uh, exploitation by, you know, foreign hands and by foreign powers. And so when those things are coupled, as you say, it makes a very poor witness for the truth of loving uh, the, the, the poor and the underserved. And that's one of the things that I was going to mention about the character of Rodriguez that is slightly different. It's that I feel like he's treated a little bit more nobly in uh, the movie. Mm. He is a little bit more pure in terms of his, uh, his character and the way that he views uh, the Japanese people, in particular Kichijiro. He's pretty condemnatory of Kichijiro uh, right. uh, at first, at least in the novel, and uh, not just condemnatory, but looks down on him and says, this, this guy can't be a Christian, He's, and, and is frankly pretty degrading of him. Um, and so has, I think that's one of the strongest elements of the novel that I wish had made it into the film. We should say that just as a reminder that Kichijiro, which I mentioned in the introduction, he was their guide back into Japan. But the, his backstory was that he was a Christian whose family all refused to renounce the faith and they were all killed. Whereas he stepped on the Fumie, the, the image, and renounced his faith and was set free. And so he actually repeats that same pattern, you know, multiple times throughout the movie and throughout the story of, of uh, betraying his fellow Christians to save his own neck and then coming back and repenting and saying, I'm so sorry, and specifically coming back to Rodriguez because as the priest, that's who can can um, grant him absolution through his confession. And he keeps confessing and he keeps confessing. And I do think that they show some of that disdain. It just may be a little bit of the... Um, not seeing it the interior monologue of it but he he Possibly. he even says you know right at uh, as they're first coming to off the boat being snuck into Japan they it's kind of spread out between the two of them the two priests um Adam Driver's Garpe and his Garfield's Rodriguez and they he he they have a little exchange where he says something about golly this guy's terrible and uh Rodriguez says well our lord you know, entrusted to even worse people than that, his message to even worse people, meaning the disciples that, you know, betrayed him, not only Judas, but all of his disciples betrayed him in the story of the the passion and the crucifixion. But I think every time that Kikujiro comes back to him to specifically confess his betrayal of the faith, he makes a face and he I mean, a priest is supposed to be basically impassive and they've heard this all before, you know, and be a neutral and just a just a person that hears the sin, grants the absolution, tells you the words of, you know, that God has forgiven you, gives you a penance and sends you on your way, whereas he is too close to it, right? He's involved and in he's in fact the one being betrayed in several instances and and he's repelled by Kikujiro's physical stench and his, you know, his appearance and his groveling and the way that he makes a big show of coming back at the most inopportune right. times and saying, forgive me, Father, Padre, Padre. So, you know, I do think there is some of that discussed there. It's not lingered on, but 
the the character of Kikujiro to me, and I think to many viewers is that is especially Christian viewers of this will be maybe the most relatable, even though he's also one of the most despicable in term at certain points. In that he um, doesn't have any pretensions of nobility, and he has the um, he keeps screwing up in the same way over and over again, and having to ask god for forgiveness and um right and even say i'm just so weak and yeah. i will try to be stronger and i know that many many times in my life if i had been born at a time when it, we there wasn't all this persecution i would have been a good christian right it's not you know, which is like right wow you know so yeah. <laughs> for for what a statement for people of faith to ponder you know is that especially people that think that they are persecuted all the time and they're not actually right or people that or on on the on the other side people that think that they are a good christian so to speak whatever that might mean right. i'm not saying that there aren't some i just mean that in the absence of that variety of trial it's it's kind of hard to know what what it looks like. I one of the people who I trust and um, from a theological standpoint has said something like, "We can't be so quick to be condemnatory of somebody like Judas or even a murderer to say something like, "Well, I would never do that," because we have not been in those circumstances and we are implicitly all weak and especially according to the Christian doctrine we're implicitly all corrupted and so that sort of that sort of statement of I would not be that person is it's similar to the kind of statement that that Peter makes shortly before he does in fact uh, deny Christ three times um, he says no even if everybody else does I never will right and and or one of the warnings in in uh, the Lord's Prayer or one of the the uh, entreaties is to lead us not into temptation, or you know, and some other translations say something like, "Don't put us to the test," you know, because we right. don't, you know, why are we pray that almost mindlessly a lot of the times, if, you know, on a regular basis as Christians, and it's like maybe we should think a little bit more about why that was one of the things that Jesus taught us to pray as a a regular thing, you know, hey we don't know what we're capable of. So Lord, keep us away from having to find out. Right, right. Really one of the central themes of that is, you know, the idea of apostasy itself is the essentially the cardinal sin that they are concerned about the entire time. And, you know, their mission is to go, largely their mission when they get there is, they want to find Ferreira because they don't believe that this happened. They think it's just a rumor that is being spread, an evil rumor about him, and they don't believe that anyone could possibly have done this. And so when uh, Rodriguez himself ends up doing that down the road, it is after you know making many declarations of that regard. Right? We would never. I would never do this kind of thing, and uh, you know at least. Or at least at first, having that sort of attitude that it's, you know, that he was he was strong enough to to never do this or something like that. And even in his initial confrontation with Ferrer when he finally sees him, he still is kind of holding on to that that idea that 
You know, he would he would not do that. He is too strong for that. And the, until he is put in the exact same circumstances, in which it is predicted by Inoue, Inoue says, or at least via Ferreira, Inoue says, you will apostatize tonight. And that's when they subject him to the basically the worst trial, which is watching other people suffer on behalf of his faith, as opposed to him suffering on behalf of his own faith. Oh, I did want to mention a couple other things. So there was actually another film version of this movie. In 1971, there's a Japanese version of Silence that was partly written by, the screenplay was partly written by Endo, the um, author of the novel. And it's hard for me to tell from the what limited info I can dig up on the internet how much he had sway over the final results on the screen the movie is interesting because it has the same kind of odd choice from one perspective that this the Scorsese film has which is to make the non-Japanese characters speak English which in the Scorsese's film kind of makes sense because it's being made by you know American filmmakers so presumably mostly for an American market. Um, so to have the bulk of the film in English kind of makes sense. But in uh, the Japanese version, it's also in English if it's not in Japanese, which is kind of weird because the main characters are, the priest characters, I mean, are Portuguese. So it's not really clear why they would be speaking English. So it's, you know, it's a film conceit. But the other thing that's very different is the ending of the of the movies. The ending of the movie, both movies, I think, is at least a conjecture or a different or an interpretation of what happens in the book, which is, I think, more ambiguous and open ended. In the book, it just kind of recounts in this very formal way, like the by these sort of documents of somebody that was just like official documents of certain events in the very last few years of the life of of um rodriguez after he's taken a japanese name and a japanese wife and all this stuff um and he dies and that's it in the scorsese film like i said before it's strongly implied that he continues his faith but completely in secret, you know, as opposed, even, you know, continually renouncing it by certain documents and stepping on the Fumie images on a regular basis. Um, and even Kikujiro is even shown to, ha which this is in the book, he gets taken away because he has a religious image on his person. So Kikujiro kind of stays in the picture and is seemingly maybe a secret disciple still, but that's the only implication in the book that maybe um, Rodriguez also was. In the movie, though, the fact that his his Japanese wife puts that cross into his hands and into his body, and that that's the very last image you see. I mean, that's a very strong interpretation on the point of Scorsese. The Japanese version ends in a very different and disturbing way. 
it ends it does not show him up to his death it just shows him basically being put in a in a cell he's like under house arrest but he's in a kind of a cage almost with his japanese wife and he starts having well one person said he was raping her but it does not i'm not really sure that that's entirely accurate but he starts having sex with his japanese wife and it has like these freeze frames of them in the middle of intercourse and that's how it ends the movie and that's really strange very i don't think that that is any way in the book to my knowledge i mean because it's so distant from no, him it's not in the book at all it's not this happens i mean then the film does a pretty good job of that they do that from the yeah. commentary of like some dutch trader or something who's like i observed yeah. these things which again is putting a western lens on the end of the movie uh, like we talked about earlier as opposed to the book which has is like official documents from inside japan but at any rate the I don't think the only thing I could find and I didn't see a, any source for this it was just an assertion on the internet that Endo did not like the movie the movie the ending of the movie so that was probably the the director's mm, kind of sensationalistic way of doing it in fact one of those images of the of Rodriguez's face next to his Japanese wife's face was a central image in one of the Japanese posters for the movie which is really like kind of amazing that that would be seen as a, as a central image for the film it's not really about that at all but the other thing that was very strange in the original movie was that they cast for Father Ferreira they cast is kind of like the opposite of the the usual like problematic yellow face casting they cast a Japanese guy as Father Ferreira, who speaks in English, which I guess is supposed to be Portuguese, but he speaks with a real thick Japanese accent. So it's very, it's like a very kind of muddling of the cultural issues that are going on in the in the text of the of the story through the casting there. So it's it's very very strange um there are some interesting and good parts of the japanese film but i think on the whole scorsese did one that really does justice to the to the novel in a way that the 1971 movie does not especially at the ending where i think it really loses the yeah it sounds like it focus of the um so the uh by way of, of kind of transition, and just maybe talk about this for a minute or so, I started but did not finish a book by Makoto Fujimura, who is the author of the book we're about to uh, explore. But he has an earlier work called Silence and Beauty, in which he, as a Japanese-American artist, is reflecting on the, the Indo work. And uh, in fact, Indo's kind of faith encounter began, I, I believe, by uh, seeing a, a, a Fumie. And Fujimura says the same thing, that at the Museum of Tokyo where he was studying, he saw the Fumie and it played a part in his uh, coming to faith himself. Yeah, it's a great book. I highly recommend um, Silence and Beauty. It's a great reflection on the book on the on Scorsese's film to an extent and but more broadly on 
um, art and faith. Um, not to be a put a pun here because that's the literal name of the next book that we're going to talk about. But it's um, it really is about uh, broadly about his Christian faith and the um, influence of art and also dealing with suffering in a personal way because one of the important things that he talks about in that book is his experience of living close to the 9-11 right or living close to ground zero when 9-11 occurred and how that was a you know a great time of suffering for him and his family and obviously for for many other people but um how his faith and his art kind of brought him through that time i think one of the things and i said i as i said i didn't get super far in in that book but one of the things that stands out at the at the very beginning is when he's he's kind of talking about that um idea but he says the main ideas of understanding the book silence the three main themes to appreciate are hiddenness ambiguity and beauty uh, and so i think when you look th- look at the work um both works scorsese's and endo's through the lens of you know what is hidden what is ambiguous it, it can help you to appreciate um how these things are intertwined uh with with trauma um, how, uh, in the end, Rodriguez's hiddenness and the ambiguity of his his faith is itself sort of a, a beautiful thing to, to contemplate. And it's, it's kind of critical to everyone's critical to everyone's faith journey, not to just um, and, and we'll talk about this a lot more in the in the next half, but not to just acknowledge the right truths, uh, but to come face to face with difficult things even like difficult things like trauma and violence and uh and evil and to be able to grapple with those things uh honestly uh without uh sort of empty intellectual platitudes so to speak maybe that's a good transition into into art and faith yeah i so i'm glad i'm glad you got to finally experience this film it's one that's meant a lot to me since it came out about five years ago, and um, I'm glad you uh, were able to share your thoughts on it with me. Yeah, no thanks. I uh, I am too. I appreciated the the faithfulness to the to the source material. Not that that's necessarily a prerequisite for something being good, but I think in in this case it it would do um, yeah a disservice to the to the source material to be let's say just hypothetically to put like a weird sex scene at the end of it or something. <laughs> just hypothetically, just, you know, not that anyone would do that, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably wouldn't have totally unrealistic. Yeah. Well, uh, so we're going to try something new this time around too. this season. Our new, uh, we weren't able to find any new sponsors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All of our sponsors from last year, which you'll remember we had as many as we had episodes. Exactly. If not more than that, because I think there was once or twice we we had to rely on uh, on two. Yeah, our agents really were unable to close any deals with a new uh, sponsor for this season because I think maybe the delay in in recording a, a new podcast for this year. 
I don't know what it was. Maybe it was because we suck. That it, it's definitely not that because I okay. um, objectively think that that's false. So <laughs> yeah, and I also objectively disagree with that. So that's two out of two votes exactly. right there. And then I have I mean, one friend who said it doesn't suck. So. I mean, everybody yeah. that has an opinion on it thinks that it's great. So, does he owe you money or something? Or <laughs> actually, come to think of it, <laughs> so yeah, so we decided that we would change gears a little bit and that we would have a brief reading of poetry in between each of our halves of the podcast as a as a kind of a means to spread a little more art and beauty and just to have a a little cushion between the two halves of the podcast so hopefully we won't be too serious all the time but no this is a rather serious uh serious set of topics here so rich has selected a poem for me to read today and the poem is by langston hughes and it is called silence I catch the pattern of your silence before you speak. I do not need to hear a word. In your silence, every tone I seek is heard. Silence by Langston Hughes. Awesome. Great. Thanks for the the reading there. I think that was a good good idea that, that you came up with. Most of the good ideas on this podcast historically have been mine, but uh, so it was nice to have you contribute something for a change. <laughs> Just kidding. The whole the whole podcast is your idea. So uh, so anything that I have made is or any idea that I've created is itself a sub creation. Huh? So there's a nice there's a nice transition into the work of Makoto Fujimura. That's a hint. Yeah. So this this book, yeah. uh, art and faith. You you only could have done you could have only done a better transition by just. Uh, there nice, you go. nice. Okay, nice. Well done. Uh, this book, art and faith. So, uh, it's not an easy book, really. To to summarize, I'll I'll, I'll kind of talk about some of the. Uh, some of the points in here, but just to say a little bit about, I think it, it it's worth saying a little bit about the author first. And I know I hinted at this earlier when we were talking about, you know, silence and beauty. And also uh, earlier we talked about him just a little bit, but Makoto Fujimura is, is a visual artist, largely by trade, um, a Japanese American visual artist, and also uh, himself a, a Christian who came to faith while he was in Tokyo, he in fact he talks about the the curiosity of that uh, in Silence and Beauty a little bit. I think about how leaving a largely or predominantly Christian or at least you know um, superficially Christian culture and going to one that was not, how that was a strange uh, way for God to bring him to faith. Uh, and he talks a little bit about the the juxtaposition of that, but. His, um, his visual art is, he's, so he's one of the rare people who has studied this ancient practice of uh, Nihonga, which is uh, a particular visual style that typically involves taking really, really expensive 
materials and crafting art out of them. And so that, that's a theme that comes up quite a bit uh, in this book, and, and we can talk about that just a little bit. But uh, as Josh mentioned earlier, he also, his studio in New York is a block or two from uh, Ground Zero. And he now has, actually, I attended a lecture by him not too long ago, and he now has uh, an art installation that's right next to that, uh, that was largely, you know, birthed out of his, his response to that. But uh, it's worth mentioning all that because one of the major themes of this of this work and and one of the things that we're I think in in Indo's book and in Scorsese's film kind of forced to contemplate is the purpose of suffering and so if if such a thing can be said to exist that, that suffering has a purpose uh, and one of the major themes of the book I think is that our suffering and and also uh, Christ's suffering as he you know in the in the Christian doctrines Christ was God who willingly took on uh, the body of a man and willingly took on, willingly inserted himself into suffering when he uh, did not need to do that, so to speak. And so one of uh, Fujimura's main points, what I'm getting around to, is that suffering produces beauty or beauty can come from the ashes of suffering. And so I think that the book Silence and, and the, the movie uh, and also this book itself and really all of Fujimura's art uh, really kind of help indicate that. And so the idea of Christ weeping and our own weeping uh, comes up a lot in this book. But one of the uh, ma other major themes in this book that he explores is the idea that one of our best and most fruitful ways of communing with God is to ourselves be creators. If God is at heart the original creator and if being a creator is a part of his personality, and if by extension we are created to reflect his personality, then it is by being creators, that we ourselves can commune with God and that we can bring beauty and uh, show God to the world. And kind of by extension, the other major point that uh, I think that he makes um, quite often in the book uh, is drawing a line between what is beautiful, not necessarily a line, but making a distinction at the very least between making something for the purpose of being useful. Not that there's something wrong with doing that, but uh, largely post-industrial uh, culture and specifically Western culture has tended to value the creation of things that are purely useful or that are purely utilitarian or that help us be successful in some sort of metricized way. Uh, he makes a very clear distinction between that and sort of the unnecessariness of beauty. Uh, and in fact, points to the latter as being uh, more indicative of God's character, that he did not create the world out of some need, but he created it for love. He created it for beauty. 
uh, at least in, in Fujimura's interpretation. And so if I had to summarize the book, which I do, um, <laughs> because of the format that is being imposed upon me by my brother, um, I would say that... Without further eloquence? <laughs> exactly, without further eloquence. I would say that those are th- those are some of the primary themes that I found in reading this. You know, I'll talk a little bit about you know some of the stylistic elements that that I think make this this book a success and make it an interesting uh, an interesting read for for a lot of people. But really, I think regardless of your perspective on faith or even necessarily your perspective on 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 art, I think it's it's worth reading for everybody. So, uh, but before I do that, what was your experience with with this book as uh, as a reader, <laughs> as opposed to as a person who used it as a doorstop? Yeah, I I think that he does try to make his perspective on art seem to be universal, but I don't know if that is always, um, I don't want to say successful, but I, I don't know if it's always really possible from what, from what he's trying to do. Um, his perspective is very much a christian perspective specifically a sort of i would think kind of a high protestant christian perspective and his it's as much as he tries to be ecumenical within um, christian belief but also outside of it his viewpoint ultimately has to come down to his own viewpoint which is his own religious faith which is his own specific tradition that he's been that he adheres to so i'm not sure if i would agree with you that i'm not sure that everyone would relate to it as um as strongly if they're not christian myself being you know christian i can relate to it but i will say you know in defense of his sort of ecumenism there was one page which came up and this is to use a concrete example here let me just back up and say that i'm a singer who performs in a professional choir in houston and we were doing a piece of music that was brand new and we're performing it in the rothko chapel and mark rothko is a you know world-renowned 20th century artist who made these non-representational paintings. They're mostly like giant blocks of color. Um, and I think th- those giant blocks of color either really, really strike at something kind of primal in people's res- response to them, or they just look like big blocks of color and they're, you know, they don't you don't respond to them at all well fujimura our author cites mark rothko as one of his greatest influences and as i said we were performing a piece in the rothko chapel and the rothko chapel is this space in houston that's a non non-denominational non-sectarian chapel but it's basically a space for contemplation that is framed by or all of the walls have these giant paintings that look kind of like big black 
or gray or some sort of purplish depending on how the light is coming through the the ceiling these big giant dark canvases and it strikes a lot of people including myself as a sort of a space that is just almost like a contemplation of death or despair and um that is not really something that many people <laughs> like to do uh, myself uh it, it hasn't spoken to me in the past so the reason i bring all of this up is because there is like two pages where in this book where fujimura describes the rothko chapel and his kind of interpretation of it and i just read just a really short part of it he he said um why would rothko paint this way what was happening in the art world during his lifetime was part of it photography increasingly took over the role of depicting history and portraiture and filmmakers were becoming more adept at communicating events and stories i'm convinced though that it also had to do with the reality of atomic destruction after hiroshima and nagasaki an artist had to question fundamentally why we create our creativity created atomic weapons the most destructive power to destroy ourselves over and over again what rothko was after was the profundity of the modern condition this looking into the abyss and not finding hope so when i visit the rothko chapel in houston a pilgrimage every art lover must make i stand in front of the image of despair a black hole of emotion with no end to be seen the paintings seem to suck out any light any substance we are left alone in the room truly alone why is this experience important why should we subject ourselves to the despair of the modern condition through art alone in the rothko chapel we begin to cross the threshold into the despair that many people experience after the loss of a loved one there are no words no light beyond the abyss no god jesus wept he quotes from the scriptures so sorry for the extended just reading there but i i have to say that just to be concrete about it that was a moment in reading the book right when we were working in that very space to try to communicate some new art of this new piece that we were performing that was partly inspired by the the environment we were in um that helped me to have a window into not only mark rothko but the music that we were performing and also just kind of the general human condition. So there's an example where he is tying together his specific Christian understanding of this theology of suffering and the suffering of Jesus. That's why he quotes the Jesus wept again. He's tying that into a discussion of an interpretation of, I should say, art that is from without is is outside of the credit the christian tradition rothko was as far as i know a secular jew and not a um not a christian believer at all but um fujimura is trying to and i hope that people that would read this book wouldn't see it as merely appropriating the 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 stories or the the faith or the belief or the insights of of non-christian believers by having a christian lens to view other 
other artists work through. I don't think I didn't I didn't take that away from it. I think that some people might be sensitive to that just from my own experience of knowing knowing people that are not Christians that talk to Christians and they sometimes that it comes off that way. But I sure. But who I mean on on just I don't know as a as a side note to that point and maybe a point of discussion for us here who does not view whatever they encounter through the lens of their own worldview. I mean, there's no other possible way of viewing something, but I don't know, maybe that's not the same thing as imposing your worldview as a mandatory way of viewing something that does not share that. Worldview. Yeah. It's a, uh, and maybe that's, maybe that's what, maybe that's what you're talking about. Yeah, it, it is because I remember not again to make this about my experiences entirely, but, Another time when we were performing a different piece, David Lang is a contemporary composer and he wrote a piece called The Little Match Girl Passion. And he is a a Jew as well, who I don't know if he's a, you know, practicing his faith or, or anything. So that's kind of beside the point. But he specifically he he spoke to us when we were performing this piece and he said I don't want to give any offense to anyone who hear, sees the word passion in the title because it was really a reinterpretation of the Hans Christian Andersen fable, um, the little match girl. Yeah, it, it's just a, it's just one of those you know depressing fables where the the little match girl you know dies in the snow that sort of thing. But it's a beautiful piece of music. But you know the fact that he called it a passion again we're talking about suffering and this is a story about suffering and about neglect and about you know in the the way that his his music brings that to life but uh, to tie that back to the other point he wanted to make sure it was clear that he wasn't trying to like disrespect the idea of like the passion of Jesus as a either as a religious story or as a subject for art or or musical interpretation you know so and and nobody took offense to it because it's it's clear that that's not you know that that wasn't the intent nor was it even um in his mind but at any rate i think that we all have to come to to art through our own lens of experience through our lens of our own suffering or through our lens of our own beliefs ideologies i suppose and um i think that that's a a fruitful thing and um it's it's a place where you know just to kind of tie it also to the some of the things we were talking about in the with the with uh, the story of silence rather than it being about cultural imperialism or cultural dominance or rather than it being about proselytism per se it can be a place where people can learn from each other and sometimes be persuaded or sometimes just be open to exchanges of of love and understanding yeah and i think that that's predominantly what what fujimura is saying I, so one thing about his writing and i was going to mention that like i said I, I i told you i'd kind of talk about this a little bit but he doesn't write in a strictly linear fashion really so sometimes it's it, it can be a little bit challenging when reading him 
to find his, you know, air quotes point. Mm -hmm. But if you think about the message that he's making in a lot of places, which is that not everything has to be utilitarian or practical, or even not everything has to be um, take these three steps or here's my bulleted list of points. One of my writing colleagues has said that you have to read him kind of the way that you would experience one of his paintings, that it's a layer of ideas and then on top of that kind of another layer of ideas. And it's very, the end result is a little bit abstract and perhaps hard to articulate or explain. And yet within that, there's a lot of richness and moments of beauty. And so, um, but that said, I do think that on the, on the note of what, what you were kind of talking about, that, that one of the quote-unquote points that he is making is that art itself is a place in which art being whatever, music or poetry or whatever, is a place that, first of all, has been somewhat neglected by modern Christianity, whatever that may mean, but by the sort of institution of Christianity as a place in which thriving and, and flourishing can happen. And, and as a place, as you say, in which there can be uh, love and appreciation of a shared experience. Because coming to terms with something like a 9-11, as he had to do, or he also has talked about his grandfather having to come to terms with, you know, kind of the, the wreckage of Hiroshima after the, after the war, coming to terms with that, while we may have a lot of different sort of worldviews about the meaning of it, it is nevertheless something that is a collective grief and a collective experience that art is a way of allowing us to kind of comfort one another and find, even if not meaning, then at least find solace, if so, if so to speak, in that. And to have some beauty arise from that. So there is a little bit of a celebration in this book. Of course, it's called uh, art and faith, but there's a little bit of a celebration of sort of uh, beauty uh, for its own sake, in a sense, or at least beauty for the sake of, or creation, I should say, for its own sake. And I don't know, I, I think that that's something that, that both of those points, one, that the church kind of historically has neglected to appreciate, and in fact, in a lot of cases, has actively fought against expressions of beauty in so much as they had some sort of moral outlook that, that, that the church, the institution of the church, whatever form that took, felt was immoral or, you know, something like that, sinful, evil, right? The church has at times been uh, an antagonistic force towards creation. And I think Fujimura, one of the things I really do appreciate him is his exploration of the idea that secular or not the act of creation itself is a glorious act mm -hmm. at least that's not to say everything that is created is glorious but that's a fundamental component of what it means to be human is to create beauty mm -hmm. specifically because it's not utilitarian it's not a bird's nest you know birds build a nest but it has a utility and so I think that, that, that he's making the point that the distinguishing mark of being human is creating not for the purpose of utility, 
Um, and then, of course, the, the kind of ripple effect that that can have in terms of allowing us to connect with other people on a human level. And that that, is, that really is what love is, or at least a, a large component of what love is, is trying to connect with one another as human beings. And so creation as a means to do that, if that's not you know, too utilitarian a word to use. But you talk about the idea of what, what lasts and what does not last. Uh, I think that's a, a theme that comes up in, in art and faith and even a theme that you can kind of perhaps extrapolate from silence, the idea of something not having an immediate practical benefit and in fact may never have a benefit for the individual who is creating it. He talks a lot about, in fact, there's a passage where he's talking about, you know, Emily Dickinson and how her editors didn't want her to have dashes in her poetry or something because they didn't have a purpose. And yet that that style became kind of her trademark. And, you know, she was somebody who was, if it's not too cliche a thing to say, not appreciated in her time as fully as she later would become. And so there was nothing utilitarian about her choices. They were entirely artistic choices. In a sense, creation, I guess, in summary of that idea, is something that may not be for our own time. And if I think about the sort of ripple effect that you're experiencing, right? So you're telling this story about how Rothko painted something. and I, He was mid-century or something like that, right? Or maybe even... Yeah, the, the 70s, chap- 80s, yeah. 60s, 70s, no, 80s, somewhere in, in there. The Rothko Chapel was completed in the uh, in the early 70s. Okay. And so I think about the experience that you had of creation upon creation, and even, you know, that, that it kind of helped you make some sense. Obviously, that particular experience that you had was not something that Rothko sat down and had an intention of one day Josh Wilson will come into this space and be singing some piece, or even that piece itself, which, as you say, was at least partially a reaction to that space. Certainly, it wasn't something that he created as a means of, a simple means of a segue into that piece so that somebody could down the road. It's just, uh, it, it has benefit in a sense uh, if benefit is the right word or it is it is fruitfulness kind of in the original uh, sense of the word right it is his the word that he uses often is generative right it is something that generates uh, more beauty beauty begets beauty and yet that doesn't have any doesn't always have any immediate kind of industrial ramifications for our success or for our, even for our happiness, so to speak, if, if uh, such a thing can be measured. So, yeah, to- I don't know. I just, you, you telling that story kind of, I think at least a little bit reinforces that idea that he's saying that art has this sort of, and in fact, even this podcast is happening as a result of art that Indo made, which itself had, Obviously, a direct influence on Scorsese, which had an influence on what we're talking about here, and on Fujimura, yeah, so on and, and so on and so forth. Right? I know this is—I don't know if this is entirely what he meant by it, but when you mentioned *Silence and Beauty*, his other book, 
and you said one of the words that uh, he talked about was hiddenness, right? Yeah, that's one of his assertions that it's important to understand hit the idea of hiddenness uh, personally and uh, especially in a in a Japanese cultural context in order to fully appreciate the themes in silence, I think is what yeah. he was asserting, probably in a more concise way than I just did. Yeah, I don't know. I just was thinking about that word when you talked about Emily Dickinson and when you talk about art that may not be functional. I mean, sometimes art isn't even decorative in the sense of that somebody doesn't see it and appreciate it. So the the idea of that art can be something that we do for ourselves what what value does it have? It not only doesn't even it doesn't even have a art can even exist without an audience and it often does for for composers, for poets, for paint for painters yeah definitely for definitely for poets <laughs> yeah it just my mine basically exists without yeah. an audience well yeah i mean it, but you have to say well is that it's not just a pep talk to to say that that there's a point to it right right it's it's the point isn't even as you say it may be even too i think it may be even too utilitarian of you to think that somebody else might benefit from it down the road. Yeah. And I think that is a point that, that he's also making, although it can have that generative effect, but that it is a, it just the mere act of creation is an act of relationship. He even talks about, you know, creating as knowing, right? That, that, that is an act of community with yeah, and, it, and and to say um, that you can make art meaningfully or purposefully <laughs> without an audience is not the same thing as to assert who cares if you listen like the famous Milton Babbitt essay you know like I'm gonna make this music that's off-putting to any audience it's not exactly to say you don't care about an audience or you don't it you know hope to communicate with some other person especially when it comes to music because i mean obviously music is a has to be performed to to, to actually it's a it's a recept yeah, it's, it's received performed and received sense. i mean especially if it's if it's composed music you know that's written music you somebody else has to perform it and then somebody else has to hear it and it doesn't really exist as long as it's just a piece of paper yeah and yet and yet, this the person singing to themselves is not any less music, even if it in the absence right. of an audience. But it is still a realized, right. realized music. But you know, when you think about something like, for instance, uh, after after Jesus is born, Mary's song is recorded in I forget which of the Gospels, but in one of the Gospels, I think it's recorded that Mary sings a song, and it's just. And if you, especially if you look at things like all the Psalms, which some of them, yes, were Psalms of ascent and were designed to be sung kind of corporately, but some of them are very much just laments, songs of one person grappling with their suffering or grappling with darkness or grappling with oppression. And in that sense, don't necessarily have any sort of audience or maybe even um, I don't know. Psalms are Psalms are different because some of them probably did have music, and then but they can also exist as poetry. 
and not just wordless music or something like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm only, basically, I'm just making the contention that even in the case of music, it doesn't have to have, there doesn't have to be any reception. It can just be, right? It, it can just be created, and even if no one ever hears it, right? Yeah. If a, if a singer sings in the Rothko Chapel and no one's there to hear yeah. them, do they really well, sing? I just made, yes. I, I was just comparing it to a sort of attitude uh, or perceived attitude of con- indifference or contempt, which is not what this is about, I don't think. This is, it's, it's, no, no, no. It's not, it's definitely not about saying like intentionally trying to be devoid of an audience or like trying to yeah, trying to be or, appalled or just trying to be contemptuous of an of the idea of an audience like you you don't get it, it just you know i think i do think that fujimura specifically in his book and in his work does expect there to be an audience i mean he does expect there to be a gallery or a, a home or a you know something where people are going to look at and contemplate the art that he spent all this time and money to create. And I do think that he does see a value in community as a place where art is received and appreciated and gains meaning and gains purpose. Purpose not in terms of utility, but in terms of experience, I guess. And that's why he keeps talking about it in the context of christian churches or you know christian communities response to art or the importance of art yeah it's you know i heard i think i shared it with you and i'm not sure if you ever went and watched it but there's a musician that we both like who and he did a keynote at a conference video virtual conference that i i don't know what you say watched yeah um (laughs) i guess you don't say attended but that I watched a few years ago and and he made some some interestingly similar points but his was a little bit he he had a little bit more of an edge but one of his you know kind of primary arguments is uh, was similar to Fujimura's in that a person of belief in a god who is a creator of things that are beautiful should be somebody who creates things that are beautiful and without throwing out any specific examples i know that we can all think of some uh one contention that i've heard from um a lot of the different sort of artists that i kind of hang around with and and uh from steve taylor was making some of the same points and i don't think fujimura is making this point but i think it's at least tangential to what he's talking about is that people who try to make christian art so to speak, or art that has this sort of utilitarian purpose are like really watering down the idea of art. And I think that some, in some ways, Fujimura is kind of hinting at that uh, when he's saying that the art, the, the sort of secular artist, even if they're not, you know, creating something specifically for the intention of converting somebody to Christianity is in a sense nearer to God than, and this is a strong contention, but is in a sense nearer to being the in the spirit of God than the person who is perhaps making something really terrible that only has 
a utilitarian purpose of conversion. Yeah. Um, so he has some, I wouldn't say criticisms, but at least some admonishments for the idea of Christian Christianity as a sort of industry yeah. or as sort of a institution that is largely designed to, I guess, grow. Right. Um, well, that goes back at, to or the, to or to convert. That goes back to this whole idea of proselytism and and stuff. I mean, if right. And his his book is called Art and Faith, and if your faith is only about converting people, like this, like recruiting people for your for your Amway business or something, then it's it's it is treating people as it is a kind of a consumeristic viewpoint, at least the way that that proselytism is being, is coming off in, in our culture, I would say frequently. Right. I mean, I don't think that that was, I mean, it wasn't exactly consumerism in in like the case of the 16th century Jesuits or something, but it was still, again, it was tied, it was was tied tied to to a consumerist and and, and all that. like we talked about. So, Again, just as faith, art and faith, just as faith shouldn't just be treated in that way, art also should not be um, about, you know, turned into a tool of or a, a mechanism of, of proselytizing or of or, or not even proselytizing like a message. I mean, we it's it's a very well-known problem, especially with book with novels and with films that the thing is preachy right i mean that's a negative thing when something is preachy because it's it's instead of telling a story that may have lots of moral components to it or ideas in it it's telling an idea and then just like turning that into a story or right so right that you know is is known to is well known to be a way to make bad art and so yeah. it's probably a it's, way it's, to make a bad faith <laughs> experience as well i think sure, that there's a parallel sure. in those two things i i agree and i think that that's kind of what that's one of the things that that he's he's talking about that you know one of the ways that we can and it's interesting that you were talking about the the rothko chapel and it's kind of proximity to to darkness because he was also talking about that at one point in this book about instead of starting from like a white canvas, basically he's putting darkness on there and then starting from a dark canvas and like then adding all those, you know, refractive materials that he tends to you add. You mean Fujimura. Pulverized, yes, pulverized minerals and all this stuff uh, to add refraction into that. And at one point also, he starts talking about the, the art of Kintsugi, which is also a major theme of his Kintsugi being the Japanese tradition of taking really expensive teaware. So teaware is actually an art form in its own variety uh, in, in Japan, which you can actually even see a little bit of in the silence film when they, uh, you know, very tea ceremonies and things of that nature have a, a, a huge cultural significance. But the art of Kintsugi is taking broken uh, teaware, and not just fixing it back the way it was, because you can't actually do that, but 
by infusing it with gold into the cracks, turning it into something that is more beautiful and, in fact, more valuable than it was before. So one of the other points that he makes, and he made this point a lot in the, in the lecture that I was listening to uh, about it, but is that there's not a lot of sense in, in facing the broken and wanting it to just be unbroken. But we can create into that darkness or into that brokenness. And this is, I think, his way of dealing with the trauma of something like 9-11, is that it can't be unbroken, right? That trauma is there, but we can kintsugi into it, right? We can pour gold into those cracks and and eventually out of that can arise something that's more beautiful and more valuable. Um, and I think when you're, uh, you know, approaching any work of art, especially work of art like Endo's Silence or like that film, that asks you to confront the darkness. <laughs> and even when we confront, you know, over the last several years, we've all had, a lot of darknesses and there's been a lot of grief and trauma uh, in the world in the last several years. Not that there isn't always, but I think for a lot of us, it, it kind of feels really present in a way that perhaps yeah. uh, it hasn't for us, especially in the West for a long time. But there's several ways I suppose you can, you can deal with it. You can, you can ignore it, I guess. You can, I don't know, you can get angry about it. But I think what Fujimura proposes, not necessarily in a, in a direct, therefore go and do this kind of call to action, but by virtue of his life and, and his kind of layered writings, is a kintsugi approach to this. That the, the best thing we can do in the face of all this trauma and all this grief is to pour gold to pour refractive material into that into that darkness and then out of that can come something beautiful and meaningful uh, stories and visual art and music and um, all of the things that kind of make our human experience worthwhile so to speak yeah <laughs> um, so that's not me being being lecturing but I I do recall saying um, that this book has a lot to do with why I'm doing something like this, this podcast and why I like sharing in the art that you recommend and sharing art with you and why I, you know, I'm a poet myself. And so I wouldn't say that I read this book and then was like, oh, I'm going to go do those things. It just kind of resonated with me on the level that maybe that's why I have always been interested in doing things like this is it just kind of touched something that I feel like was already there in me um, that I didn't put there, but just kind of helped give some words to the sentiment that I had already felt in a sense. So, yeah, well, I think that's a great place to, to leave it for this episode. We, um, I think recommend both of these works, Scorsese's film of silence and the book it's based on by Shusaku Indo. And, um, Makoto Fujimura's Art and Faith, uh, both works that are 
from a decidedly Christian perspective, but that try to reckon with things that are broadly applicable across um, different cultures and across the human experience. So next episode, which I'm not making any promises of when it's going to come out, given our track record, but our intent is for it to be... But it will definitely not be... It will not be... Tomorrow. It won't be tomorrow. I'll just say that's true. And it won't be in Well, the past. it depends on when you're... I guess that depends on when you're listening to this episode. Because there's a possibility oh, that that's a good it point. could be tomorrow. That's a good point. But for me, it will not be tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you Well, we are going to look at the essay by Mario Alejandro Ariza, Come Heat and High Water. Yes. Which is about climate change and then we're going to look at the film by darren aronofsky noah and if we're i'm not going to make any promises but we're going to try to have a special guest that will help us uh we'll have some expert this will be our first time to have a special guest on uh if it if it works out he'll give us some real insight into both uh both topics i think yeah, that's a that's awesome. I'm I'm excited about that. It's something we actually talked about a long time ago and had, you know, wanting to do and it just hasn't manifested. Yeah. So So it may not just be he, see here brother, but Yeah. So see here you. I don't know. <laughs> um <laughs> that's almost a better that's almost a better title. We should change it. Um no, I don't understand why people can't, you know, why we're having such a hard time finding a, a, a guest when our schedule is so regular yeah. and, and predictable. Right? Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. No. No. But uh, anyway, it's, it's good to be back. Uh, thanks, everyone, uh, if you are listening. <clears throat> it's really nice to have you around, and uh, we're looking forward to some more episodes this year. Absolutely. Have a nice life. And even though it hurts you.